Welcome, romance friends, to Confessions of a Closet Romantic, a podcast where I gush and go on and on about my favorite romantic books, TV shows, and movies without embarrassment or shame, mostly. Join me in this episode for Hot for Teacher, Romance Set in Academia. Do y'all remember me telling you quite a while back about this massive crush I had on my university professor who taught that 19th century survey of English literature course? Oh my god. Thinking back, I cringe. Following him like a puppy after class chatting and walking through campus with him. I have such affection for that sweet, lonely, intellectual girl who just wanted someone to talk to about these stories that affected her so much. He was smart and handsome, and all I could think about was his brain, his love for and his insight into these books. It was like I was creating a secret world. Its borders were an afternoon walk after class between campus buildings where we bonded over these old stories. I'm pretty sure my passion made him uh, uncomfortable, but I could barely contain myself. I was too young and naive to realize how it looked, but if he had been careless and let it go further, anywhere could have lost his job. There is a very similar dynamic in Gabriel's Inferno. This is one of the most memorable romances I read last year. It's a story about a priggish pedant of a professor of Italian literature, a specialist in Dante, and a naive intellectual grad student from a broken home who's comforted by the courtly romantic stories of ancient Italian literature, and she's especially fascinated by Dante. Gabriel is Julia's friend's brother, and they made out under the stars one night as teenagers before he disappeared from her life. And then he resurfaces some years later at her university as her Italian literature professor. Only he's got some brooding demons that have followed him around ever since. She never forgot him. She's pretty much saved herself for him or somebody like him. But he doesn't seem to recognize her. Oh, but he's instantly irritated by her. And he is a completely arrogant ass to her. Until that tropey moment when he clicks who she actually is and why he cares for her so deeply without realizing it. I didn't make any videos with him. God, what if he filmed me without me knowing? We can talk to my lawyer. You can file a complaint and get a restraining order. His dad's a senator. He has connections. He could do so much damage. Don't let the glasses and what I fool you. I won't let him hurt you. I'll move heaven and earth to protect you. I promise you that. 
Oh, this trope. If you've ever felt neglected, unseen, long to find that missing puzzle piece in another person, that special someone who shares your weirdest passions, well, his stern, protective daddy professor is overwhelmingly appealing. Julia Mitchell is a grad student, and Gabriel Emerson is kind of like a young prodigy, so the age difference isn't massive, but you can play mildly taboo trope bingo in this story for sure. Let's see. Virginal main character, power difference, academic love, age gap, secret love, second chance, slow burn, grump sunshine, and best friend sibling. Oh, and my favorite romantic trope of all time, the one that even beats just one bed, moving her to his home and bed so she can be safe and looked after. (gasps) So Passion Flicks has waved its magic wand over the entire Gabriel's Inferno series, adapting the books into movies with lush productions, gorgeous intimate lighting, music and art, heavy pauses on the trope buttons, stunningly gorgeous leads, and a lingering pace that dwells languidly like a hand running up a bare thigh on every sexually charged slow burn moment in these stories. I want to make love to you because I care about you. I want to worship your naked body with my own and learn all your secrets. You're back in ecstasy. And I want to look into your eyes when I make you come. When you look at me like that, I feel like I'm going to spontaneously combust. I want you to be my first. I'm yours. If you'll have me. I want nothing more. For play is essential. Tonight is about your pleasure. I want to explore all your senses. Sound. Taste. Sight, touch. I want to take my time arousing and exciting you. And most of all, I want to I want to teach your body to recognize the man who worships you just by my touch. 
<laughs> okay, is that over the top? Uh, yeah. But that's how you make a sexual debut on screen. The scripts and direction can be a little creaky, and the book is not the best written romance I've ever read, but it is a hot, hot, romantic, sexy story with eternal appeal, much like the most beautiful Italian cities. It reminds me a little bit of the dynamic in the first season of Discovery of Witches, though Diana and Matthew are two academics of somewhat equal power, but it's still full of that delicious, we really shouldn't get involved, slow burn tension. In Gabriel's Inferno Part 1, there is a three-minute kiss-slash-makeout session against a wall. People... When I tell you, they must be miking these actors very closely because you can hear every sigh and every pant. And then in Gabriel's Inferno Part 3, when they finally get it on, it rivals the wedding night scene from Outlander for sensuality. Don't miss it. There's something about smart people who live mainly by their wits that reminds me of my young self, thinking my way out of every situation when feeling was really the answer. Much like the titular character of Maggie's Plan, which is written and directed by the wonderful Rebecca Miller. This is a charming, tiny film about a woman who believes that she can control every part of her life just determining what will happen with her mind, and then figuring out that life is much too messy to be contained like an academic coursework within a semester. Greta Gerwig stars as Maggie, who at the start of the story discusses her decision to have a child on her own with her good friend, played by Bill Hader. And I'm not going to marry him. I'm just borrowing his genes. But not his personality, I hope. Guy trousers? Well, everybody's got something a little bit wrong with him. You think everybody's honest who fills out those questionnaires at the sperm bank donation thing? I can't believe you've been cooking this up and you didn't even tell me. Well, because I knew that you'd yell at me. I'm not yelling at you. I'm just, I mean, it, isn't this something that women do who are like 49 and desperate? I don't want it to be a last resort. I want it to be a choice because I'm ready to be a mother. And I don't believe that I'll find someone that I can stay in love with or who can stay in love with me for longer than six months. I'm just facing the truth about myself. When's the insemination? Are we going to have a party? In four months. Hey, is my breast oh, I love her. Her chosen sperm donor is a Brooklyn-based pickle entrepreneur who is quirky and hippie-ish and seems really suited to her. But she's not interested after she meets a fellow professor at the new school in New York. 
What do you teach? Uh, Fictocritical perspectives in family dynamics. Mm. Yeah, and masks in the modern family, Victorian times to the present day. Psychology department? Uh, anthropology. I don't know any anthropologists. Yeah. Well, what about you? I'm the director of business development and outreach for the art and design students. Hmm. Uh, what is it? I help graduate students strategize for success in the art and design world. I'm sort of a bridge between art and commerce. You seem a little young for that, no? I have an MBA and a master's in arts management. So John is married to Georgette, a fearsome Danish intellect and tenured professor at Columbia, played beautifully by Julianne Moore. Sorry, I'm late. John Harding, author of many books, including Rituals of Commodity Fetishism at the Tail End of the Empire. So, John, of course, we've been discussing the Occupy I can't help mentioning the irony that Warner Brothers owns a copyright on the V for Vendetta mask that became the face of the Occupy. Whether we like it or not, in this country, the most potent totemic uh, symbols that we have are cinematic and television based. So it only makes sense that a radical popular movement would uh, try to Nevertheless, the reality of Occupy mm-hmm. occurs within the capitalist narrative <laughs> as a kind of subplot. This sweeping cynicism of yours is... If by sweeping cynicism you mean not living in a dream, then shoot me now. Maybe the way... Nobody we... ever thinks a revolution is going to happen until three days after it's happened. This is a leaderless movement. It, it wasn't going to operate on a schedule. This was a genuine populist uprising. Yes, absolutely. But to return to the use of masks in politics, I am more interested in the possibility of anonymity and group affiliation. The I am Spartacus maneuver, which has been the primary tactical explanation for the use of masks among various 20th and 21st century protest movements, including the Zapatistas, the Black Blocs, the anti-globalization movement, and of course, Pussy Wyatt. But this family is not big on togetherness. Their little family of four is crumbling from neglect. John is a pretty self-absorbed, aspiring novelist as well, and it's become a problem in both his marriage and his developing relationship with Maggie. Their affectionate friendship deepens into an affair, and John eventually leaves Georgette and his kids and marries Maggie, and they have a baby together an attempt to blend their families. But now Maggie feels like a nanny to the children and John's ambitions instead of a woman with her own powerful career. So she comes up with a well-intentioned plan to get John and Georgette back together because she believes he still loves her and that's where he really belongs. Okay, I'm leaving. Okay, sorry. so humiliated in my life. I'm in such deep oatmeal. What was I thinking? Maybe you're having a psychotic episode. But it was such a good idea. You know, life doesn't work this way, you doofus. You can't take everything and stuff it back in the box. God, I think you need some help. Why are you being so hostile? Because it pisses me off. The whole thing pisses me off. Why? Why can't you just leave your husband like any normal human being? Because it would be such a waste. A waste? You are such a hall monitor. It's not a waste. He's not a paper product. Love is messy. It's illogical, it's wasteful, and it's messy. And it leaves these loose threads that go out all over the place. But you, you like things nice and neat and tidy and ethical. But you screwed that up the minute you got with a married man. 
You're not being my friend right now. Oh, yes, I am. I am being your friend. This is being your friend. I'm being honest with you. Good intentions. You are all about good intentions. Little Miss Quaker Two Shoes is going to do the right thing, but you always somehow screw it up. Screw you. Yeah, screw me, fine. Just being honest. I'm trying to be a friend. Don't come over here and at how are crayons in the food? I'm sorry. Hey, hey, Maggie. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I mean, hey, what about Lily? After Maggie awkwardly meets with Georgette initially to float her plan, they unexpectedly bond over their mutual love of John. But the plan isn't exactly effective, with two characters so divorced from their own feelings. See me? Yes. I wanted to return your book. And where shall I scatter these? Anywhere's fine. Mm-hmm. I cannot believe, on top of everything else, you burned my fucking book. I burned a copy of your book. I didn't even read of it. Of course, I read it. That's why oh. I burned it. You cannibalized our marriage to write that story. You didn't even bother to fictionalize this in yours. I write fiction. Oh, you think you painted a precise portrait of us in Bring Back the Geisha? I cannot believe you're making me feel bad about the sins of my unpublished manuscript and you're glossing over your actual lies and manipulation. I never, ever lie. I I lie now. I manipulated. I debased myself morally because I loved you so terribly much. Maybe you could be flattered. If you love me, why not just tell me? hmm? You were married. this whole life up and now i'm looking for an airbnb to live in so there's nothing more to say okay no other conversation about that the reason your book doesn't work is you put too much weight in the allegory you're trying to use fiction to prove a thesis the text is crying out for pure passages of economic theory narrative blended with theory is your speciality Make it a John Harding book. It could be a phenomenon. You really think so? I know it, John. You just have to accept. It'll be published by Yale University Press and not Scribner's. Probably be shortlisted for Bates and Prize. You might even win one. Oh, fuck. You did it again. (sighs) What? You know me better than I know me. Sometimes. I wish I didn't. You look so good in this light. Seek out these lighting conditions whenever possible in that case. I won't say anything else about the plot because the gentle, big-hearted, ridiculously messed up journey is the whole appeal of this little film. You can't help but relate to Maggie's well-meaning desire to intellectualize everything and control events, believing that she knows what's best for everyone, but she least of all knows what's best for herself. (sighs) 
think if you guys saw each other again... No, 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 no more matchmaking ideas. No more ideas, period. You've had your thinking license revoked. I'm not going to get involved with anybody's fate ever again. Not even my own. I'm going to become a completely passive, non-interventional Buddhist. But I think that if you just saw him, no, Maggie, if you guys just... Let this go, Maggie. This story has its own momentum apart from you. It always did. I am so sick of being me. You should really try the tapping. Try what? Yeah, I went to this workshop on biofeedback. It's amazing. What you do is you, you figure out what the essential thing is you want to change. And then you, you make a sort of a dictum. Um, like uh, f for you, for instance, I am not controlling. If that is what you want to change. Yeah. Yes, that's a perfect okay, point. So, uh, so I am not controlling. 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 And let's talk about Ethan Hawke as John. This guy. He just gets sexier and sexier the older he gets. His sexy has grown exponentially for me. And every time I see that dang TED Talk YouTube video with him commenting on art and creativity, I mean, he's always been a smart actor, but man, his wisdom and his smarts look really good on his gray I'll link to this amazing TED Talk on creativity in the show notes. I was hoping today to talk a little bit about creativity. You know, a lot of people really struggle to give themselves permission to be creative. And reasonably so. I mean, we're all a little suspect of our own talent. And I remember uh, a story I came across in my early 20s that kind of meant a lot to me. I was really into Allen Ginsberg, and I was reading his poetry, and I was reading, uh, he did a lot of interviews. And uh, one time, William F. Buckley had this television program called Firing Line, and Ginsberg went on there and sang a, a Hare Krishna song while playing the harmonium, you know. And he got back to New York to all his intelligentsia friends, and they all told him, Does you know that everybody thinks you're an idiot? I and mean, the whole country's making fun of you. And uh, he said, That's my job. You know, I'm a poet, and I'm going to play the fool. Most people have to go to work all day long, and they come home, and they fight with their spouse, and they eat, and they, like, turn on the old boob tube, and somebody tries to sell them something. And I just screwed all that up. I went on, and I sang about Krishna. And now they're sitting in bed and going, who, who, who's this stupid poet? And they can't fall asleep, right? And that's his job as a poet. And so I find that very liberating because I think that most of us really want to offer the world something of quality, something that the world will consider good or important. And that's really the enemy because it's not up to us whether what we do is any good. And if history's taught us anything, the world is an extremely unreliable critic, right? So you have to ask yourself, do you think Human creativity matters. Mmm, talk to me, baby. It's all about the words. 
Hello, Israel, Egypt, and Vietnam. If you like what you hear, I'd love it if you'd share this podcast with a friend. And you can visit confessionsofaclosetromantic.com for show notes and more info. Until next time. Um, You meet somebody and your heart explodes. You love them so much you can't even see straight. You know, you're dizzy. Did anybody feel like this before? What is happening to me? And that's when art's not a luxury, it's actually sustenance.